Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. On October 13th and 14th, Fidelity Investments Canada proudly hosted an in-person event for financial advisors, featuring several Fidelity portfolio managers and subject matter experts. On today's Fidelity Connects podcast, we're bringing you one of these sessions, with host Pat Bolland leading a panel discussion on ETFs and digital assets. Pat is joined by Vivian Su, Director of Product Innovation, Megan Chen, Digital Asset Strategist, and Ritu Kumra, Analyst and Portfolio Manager. Fidelity has an extensive ETF lineup, including the all-in-one ETF suite. Digital asset products have also been introduced to round out the lineup, with products focused on both Bitcoin and Ether. The panel will unpack all of this and more with Pat today. And please note, as this discussion initially took place at a live event, there were some slides displayed to the in-person audience. Today's podcast was recorded on October 13th, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Great to have you all. Exciting area, actually, ETFs. But they've been around for a long time. Yes, yes. Amazing how long. I think they're 30 years now, only because I did the first trade in ETFs. So I have a soft spot for ETFs overall. Let's start with you. Uh, what do we have in the Fidelity ETF lineup, first and foremost? Yeah, I would say um, we entered the market back in 2018. So now four years later, we have 36 ETFs, $2.5 billion later. Um, we really we started with factors, um, expanded to ESG, uh, multi-asset, uh, fixed income, and then most recently, digital assets. And what I would add to that is also the... Um, the change in sort of support and roles within Fidelity as well. So my role at Fidelity changed from, you know, looking after ETFs, expanded to alternatives, crypto, as well as ESG. Uh, Megan, who's our uh, in-house digital asset uh, strategist, um, is also our go-to um, alternative product development, um, spearheads that effort. And of course, Ritu, um, who's been a tenured um, uh, research analyst at uh, Fidelity has taken on the management responsibilities for Bitcoin and Ether. So really the whole ecosystem around supporting our ETF business has been evolving over the past few years. What was the decision process in moving into digital assets and Bitcoin and Ether in particular? Yeah, we, we actually, um, Fidelity in the U.S. has some history in that. We started back in 2014, research into crypto and, and digital assets. And um, we looked at um, the potential for digital assets and what that means for investors. And especially in Canada, it does have a better um, more accommodative regulatory regime when it comes to spot ETFs for crypto. So we felt that was a natural um, sort of uh, expansion 
of our capabilities in digital assets management, which I'll let Megan and Ritu get into a little bit more later, um, but also sort of bring that opportunity to Canadian clients looking into the next like 10 years development. Yeah, making it another investable asset. Correct. Okay, let's move on because I sometimes get confused the difference between Ether and Bitcoin. So Megan, let's walk through that. What is the difference between, well, first off, let's talk about what Bitcoin is first and then tell me how Ether is different. How about that? Sure. So for background, a blockchain network is a decentralized network of computers called nodes, where each node processes and records all the transactions that take place on the network. And the transaction record that's kept by each of these nodes takes the form of a chain of blocks, where each block specifies a set of transactions. And so this is what's called a blockchain. Now, Bitcoin was launched in 2009, and it was the first ever blockchain network to be established. And while Bitcoin focuses on being a payments network, Ethereum is more flexible than Bitcoin, in the sense that Ethereum aims to be a general platform for different kinds of applications, such as DeFi applications or NFTs. So DeFi stands for decentralized finance and refers to blockchain applications that provide financial services, uh, such as borrowing and lending services to users, but without needing any centralized intermediaries. And NFT stands for non-fungible token and is a type of uh, blockchain token that can represent the ownership of various assets. The idea being that NFTs can allow for the storage of asset ownership on an open and decentralized ledger instead of in centralized corporate databases. Now, Bitcoin is the only token on the Bitcoin network, at least so far. But because of Ethereum's flexibility, there are many different types of tokens on the Ethereum network, uh, whether it be fungible tokens or non-fungible tokens. Now, Ether, which is the token in which our fund will invest in, is what's called the native token or the fundamental token of the Ethereum network, which means it's the token that's used to pay for all the transaction fees on the Ethereum network. So anybody, anyone that wants to transact on the Ethereum network would need to own some Ether. And so the value of Ether is directly linked to the level of transaction activity on the Ethereum network whether it be DeFi activity, NFT activity, and so on. Um, now, because blockchain networks are decentralized and there's no central point of coordination, all blockchain networks need what's called a consensus mechanism, uh, which allows all the nodes on the network to agree with one another on the chain of blocks that make up the blockchain. There are two main types of consensus mechanisms. One is called proof of work, um, this is used by the Bitcoin network, and it's also called Bitcoin mining. Now, the main alternative to proof of work is called proof of stake, and this is used by the Ethereum network. In fact, Ethereum recently, uh, last month, moved from proof of work to proof of stake consensus uh, in an event called the merge, which we can elaborate on further uh, later on. So what is the value proposition of Ethereum? So uh, Ethereum aims to provide a decentralized infrastructure for various types of applications that can be built on it. And such a decentralized infrastructure can have several potential advantages, such as security, um, in the sense that no single entity controls the network, no single entity can shut it down, and there's no central point of vulnerability. 
accessibility in the sense that uh, anyone from anywhere can access the network and its applications um, without permission. And these applications should also be highly resistant to censorship. Now, another important uh, concept is self-custody. This means that users can custody their blockchain assets themselves without needing to rely on a third-party custodian. The way it works is that users hold cryptographic keys called private keys that are linked to their blockchain assets. And only these keys can control their funds on the blockchain. Now, that being said, for uh, convenience or security purposes, users or investors can choose to store their crypto with a trusted third-party custodian like Fidelity. And we can talk more about uh, Fidelity security features later on. Okay. But uh, in the early days of digital currencies and Bitcoin in those days, um, a lot of those aspects were the same in terms of the currency itself. But the difference with Ether at the beginning is they explained that Ether came as a digital currency attached to a contractual obligation. Is that a correct kind of an explanation? In other words, you had to do something in order for the currency to actually be valid. Exactly. So one of the core concepts of blockchain is that everything is algorithmic. So uh, Ether is issued algorithmically. And Actually, this brings, back, uh, brings us back to transparency, which is one of the elements of the value proposition, um, in the sense that all the applications that live on Ethereum, the code that drives these applications is publicly visible, and anyone can go and examine exactly how these protocols work. And so this really brings a new level of transparency to uh, financial services, for example. Okay, but if the application, if the contract is broken for some reason, does the currency part of it go away? So this is actually a very uh, good point because um, this, some DeFi protocols, for example, have been famously hacked in the past. And every year, um, billions are actually lost in these um, hackings. And so one of the key elements of development going forward is really to focus on the security, improving the security of these uh, protocols. And I think that as the space matures, we'll see these protocols become increasingly secure as vulnerabilities, common vulnerabilities are addressed. In the early days, I actually invested in Bitcoin through an app on my phone and I lost the phone and the currency was gone, right? But uh, I recovered it somehow. I must have had a software backup and all of a sudden, $50 worth of Bitcoin was worth $2,000 and I bought a new set of golf clubs. But I learned an important lesson there. It's a true story, but uh, the, uh, I learned an important lesson about wallets and the ability to self-custody or not. Mm -hmm. Do, does Ether work on the basis of wallets? Yes. So Hot and Ether, cold wallets and that kind of jazz? That's right. So Bitcoin and Ether and all other cryptocurrencies are stored in special wallets called cryptocurrency wallets. And what these wallets do is that they hold the private keys that I was talking about before. So these private keys control user funds on the blockchain. In order to spend your Bitcoin or Ether on uh, the Bitcoin or Ethereum networks, you would need to sign the transaction with your private key. Only the person who owns that private key can spend the funds linked to that private key. So sometimes, you know, uh, users have in the past lost their wallets or lost the passwords associated with their wallet, thus completely losing access to their funds. Um, and this is why users, you know, sometimes trust third-party custodians like Fidelity to hold their crypto for them, just for security and convenience purposes. Good. Okay, I won't do that mistake again. You have the hard one, Ritu, because you have to explain what actually happened in 
the merge. Um, <clears throat> so Megan actually touched on it a little earlier. So uh, back in mid-September, uh, the merge was actually one of the biggest events in the crypto ecosystem history. And so um, it was actually supposed to happen years ago, but um, it ended up taking six or seven years to actually transpire. Um, so effectively what the merge is, is it's a transition from the proof of work consensus mechanism to the proof of stake consensus mechanism. And as Megan talked about earlier, that's effectively a change in, way, in the way that transactions are approved on the Ethereum network. So with proof of work, uh, the approvers of the transactions are known as miners, and they compete um, and they try to solve complex mathematical problems using electricity. Whereas with proof of stake, um, these approvers are actually called validators, and they are uh, randomly selected on the Ethereum network in order to um, approve their transactions. And, um, in order to keep these validators honest, uh, they actually have to put up their own ether as collateral, which is otherwise known as, as staking. Um, so there's a number of advantages of moving on to the proof of stake network, uh, or sorry, consensus mechanism, and um, perhaps the most obvious one is the fact that energy usage has gone down materially. And so this is to the tune of 99.9%. .9%. And um, the energy usage is actually a common criticism of Bitcoin. Um, so that's, that's positive for a proof of stake and for the Ethereum network. Other advantages include um, an increase in security, the fact that um, Ether is yield-bearing, um, and then the merge is actually a gateway to um, improve scalability, not now, but more so in the medium term, um, which should in turn help with transaction fees. But perhaps something that's not as well-known is, you know, the slide that we have up here, and it's, it's what's happened to the inflation rate of Ether. And so pre-merge, we were at roughly 4% from an inflation rate standpoint, and that's now, at this point, 10 basis points. Um, so to put that into perspective, uh, Bitcoin, which is often thought of as an emerging store of value, um, is at in the high 1% range. So um, there's a material uh, decline in the actual supply that's coming in for Ether. So as we headed into the merge over the summer, uh, what we saw was, uh, just from a price volatility standpoint, we saw material outperformance of Ether heading into the merge. And this was because market participants uh, really pre-positioned, as well as validators and stakers, they pre-positioned for the merge. Um, since then, we've seen material underperformance. And uh, what we've seen is, despite there being additional staking demand uh, marginally, what we saw was, of course, the macroeconomic environment that we've talked about a number of times today, um, we saw Ethereum miners sell their Ether because they were no longer stakeholders. Mm. Um, and then we also saw some uh, comments coming out of uh, Chairman Gary Gensler from the SEC uh, basically implying increased regulatory scrutiny. So it ended up being a buy the rumors, sell the news type event. Okay. Um, you talked about electricity and what it takes to do these transactions. Was there not a concern, and I read about this, that the Bitcoin miners were becoming too politically concentrated? And I'm talking about places where electricity is cheap, like China or other places in the world. What, what was behind that story? 
Yeah, I mean, we saw that quite a bit. And so we saw the, the like, um, in China, there was a ban on crypto, uh, sorry, Bitcoin mining. And then so um, the crypto, sorry, the Bitcoin miners moved elsewhere effectively. Um, but what we've seen actually more recently is um, the miners have actually been quite accommodative. So for example, in Texas, um, what we've seen is that whenever there is, you know, an, uh, like an electricity outage, uh, Bitcoin miners actually scale back and they shut down in order to accommodate the rest of the network. And so they've been, they've been fairly accommodative more recently. Is that true of Ether as well then? Well, Ether is now on the proof of stake um, consensus mechanism. And so that's no longer, it's no longer, um, it's no longer a concern for Ether. So it doesn't draw electricity to the same extent. Oh, interesting. What are the drivers of return in both Bitcoin and Ether? Okay, so um, so with Ether, I like to think about Ether from a supply-demand perspective, similar to how I think about Bitcoin. And so um, starting off with demand, I think um, if we parse out kind of the short-term and the long-term, short-term, I think we could potentially see increased staking demand from, um, from the validators I spoke of a little earlier. But I think the, um, the real juice is in what's happening long term, and that is the increase in user and development activity. So despite us being in a crypto winter right now, it's interesting because if you go to a developer conference, which I was just at a few months ago, um, there's, you wouldn't think that that's the case. There's nothing stopping from a development standpoint, which is, which is quite good. So where are these developers focusing their time? So um, I'd highlight two categories for now, and who knows what exists in the future. But the first is actually what Megan touched on. It's uh, DeFi, so decentralized finance. So just to recap, that's effectively a parallel financial system without a centralized entity um, and you know, full of products and services. And so that's, we can actually do that because of the underlying blockchain technology. And so you can trade, borrow, lend, invest, um, all on a peer-to-peer -peer basis. So there's a lot of financial innovation happening there. Um, the second category, which again, Megan touched on, is NFTs and gaming. And so NFTs are non-fungible tokens and it effectively um, tokenizes assets. Um, in a unique manner. And so what we saw back in 2021, prior to the current crypto winter, is uh, we saw a lot of musicians and artists really um, um, go direct to their consumer because they can do that on, using, on a peer-to-peer -peer basis. And so what that did, I think, is, is it drew in kind of your mainstream consumer and investor into the crypto ecosystem and allowed for more exposure across the broader uh, ecosystem. So those are like kind of the two categories I'd highlight from a, uh, from a demand standpoint. Where I think it gets really interesting is actually supply. And so um, I alluded to the 10 basis points that uh, I talked about earlier in terms of the inflation rate. And um, whereas with Bitcoin, we know that Bitcoin has a cap of 21 million points. It has a set supply schedule that's cut in half every four years. So it's very predictable from a supply standpoint. But with Ether, you actually don't have that. In fact, we don't know what the future inflation rate is going to be. And that's because of two uh, factors. One, um, the actual new supply is driven by the amount that is staked. So the amount that um, validators have staked on, on um, the Ethereum network. And number two, um, it's also based on the congestion of the Ethereum network. And so that will determine how much is actually burned. And so the net of that is equivalent to the 10 basis points I spoke about earlier. 
So while we have something that's disinflationary right now, if you have a view that we could be in an environment where um, there's increased development activity, increased congestion on the Ethereum network, um, it's not it's not difficult to see a scenario in the future where Ether becomes deflationary. But not only that, we actually have um, 30 percent of the current outstanding supply that's temporarily removed from the the system, and that is because it's held up as collateral, whether it's DeFi in DeFi or in staking. So you have really strong fundamentals here where you have potential for short-term staking demand, long-term development activity, whether it's DeFi, NFTs, gaming. From a supply standpoint, you have a disinflationary token, and you have 30% of the supply that's temporarily uh, removed from the system. So you know, the, the, it, sets it, up, it sets Ether up for a nice, like, a nice supply-demand story. But I think what we need to be cognizant of is the current macroeconomic environment, which is uh, which we've talked about a number of times today and is driving the short-term narrative. Okay. I, I do want to go back a little bit because the NFT is something I've never understood well, but you did a pretty good job making it, tying it into music. So these musicians were saying, okay, we're going to publish a million versions of this song, if you will, and then that's tied to the Digital currency? Is that how that works? Yeah. And, you know, actually, like, Megan will probably talk about this when, as it comes time to, like, the metaverse as well. Like, there's actually um, what you've seen musicians do is hold, like, concerts in the metaverse or, like, have these, like, invite-only, like, clubs in the metaverse. And, you know, so musicians can actually directly, um, you know, communicate with, with the actual um, fan or, or consumer or investor. Wow, cool. Okay, so then whenever there's drivers like that, there's got to be risks associated to that. Megan, do you want to tackle that area? Sure. So there are several types of risks, starting with competitive risks. So Ethereum is currently the largest generalized blockchain in terms of users and market cap. When Ethereum launched in 2015, actually, it was the first ever generalized blockchain um, to really expand on Bitcoin's vision. But today, there are many other generalized blockchains, such as Solana, Cardano, Avalanche, Polkadot, et cetera. Um, and these alternative platforms may eventually overtake Ethereum in terms of adoption for various reasons. So that's competitive risks. There are also technological risks. The development of Ethereum is only about 55% complete, according to co-founder Vitalik Buterin. So there will be future upgrades related to improving various aspects of the network, such as its security, uh, its decentralization, or its scalability, which means making transactions faster and cheaper on the network. So the future adoption of Ethereum is going to critically depend on the success or the failure of these future development efforts. Now, in terms of regulatory risks, the regulation around digital assets is still very much emerging across um, principal jurisdictions. The US and the European Union, for example, have made um, decent progress on stablecoin legislation, as well as the regulation of centralized actors that play an important role um, in the crypto ecosystem, such as cryptocurrency exchanges. But there does still remain a regulatory uncertainty around quite a few issues. Now, some regulation can certainly be positive because it can encourage stability and drive adoption. But unfavorable regulation or enforcement actions, and we'll give an example later, um, can certainly deter the development of the space, especially given its nascency. So turning to centralization risks, now these risks really go to the heart of the ideology of blockchain technology. 
various points of centralization actually threaten to undermine the principle of decentralization on which the value proposition of Ethereum and of blockchain networks more broadly um, is based by introducing, for example, concentrated points of failure, facilitating censorship, and so on. Now, centralization risks uh, have come particularly into focus recently because in August, the US government sanctioned for the first time ever a decentralized blockchain protocol called Tornado Cash. Now, Tornado Cash is uh, a protocol that's used to obfuscate the transaction trail of users on the blockchain. It was sanctioned for anti-money laundering reasons because it's actually been used by the in the past by various criminal organizations to launder money, including the famous North Korean hacking entity Lazarus Group. However, uh, Tornado Cash is also widely used for totally legitimate purposes uh, for users who are just trying to improve their privacy. But after the sanctions, what happened was that various points of centralization actually uh, contributed to making it very difficult uh, for many users to access this protocol, which raises uh, censorship concerns. For example, many users don't actually run their own node. They uh, access the Ethereum network via large third-party node operators. And after the sanctions, many of these third-party node operators, such as Infura or Alchemy, started to block requests to Tornado Cash. And also, now that Ethereum has moved to proof of stake, um, as Ritu alluded to earlier via the merge, Ether is now the resource that's used to determine someone's influence over the proposal of new blocks on the Ethereum network. But again, many users don't stake directly themselves. They stake through third-party services. In fact, the top three staking pools currently account for over half of total staked Ether. What this means is that new blocks that are proposed on Ethereum is largely concentrated in the hands of only a few entities. And these entities can just choose to exclude Tornado Cash-related transactions, or really any transactions that they wish to, in the new blocks that they propose. And another consideration is that companies that bridge crypto and traditional currencies serving as uh, intersection points between the crypto and the traditional world are centralized. Um, you have centralized crypto exchanges like Coinbase, for example. You have uh, stable coin issuers like Tether and Circle that are also centralized. In fact, Circle, which is the issuer of the second largest stable coin, USDC, was able to freeze USDC funds related to the sanctioned Tornado Cash addresses. So all this to say that centralization risks certainly undermine the censorship resistance of Ethereum. And censorship resistance, uh, if we go back to the value proposition slide, is one of the key elements of Ethereum's value proposition. And so this is why improving decentralization is one of the key, um, key aspects of the development roadmap of Ethereum going forward. Wow. You learned about everything I know in digital currencies like in 20 minutes and it took me years and years to figure out. So that was really cool. Uh, we do have some questions before we get into the part where how do you use these things, right? So Megan, out of the current 19 million Bitcoin in circulation, is there any indication of how, how much of that supply is lost due to consumers forgetting passkeys, losing wallets, as, oh. access, et cetera? This is actually quite a hard metric to pin down because it's very hard to tell um, which portion is just lost or just 
owned by people who haven't moved their Bitcoin or Ethereum in a very long time. It's hard to tell these two uh, parties apart. But it's estimated that uh, the amount lost is about 20%. This is just based on um, the amount of Bitcoin that hasn't been moved since you know, 2012 or something like that. So it's about 50, uh, one fifth, so 20% which is quite significant. And it just goes to show that uh, users who self-custody do take on storage risks. Yeah, so yeah. better to use fidelity. Oh, cool. Okay, so now how do we use these things? So let's, again, uh, come back out, Vivian, talk about uh, fidelity's role in ETFs and then where you see them fitting. So let's, we've got a chart for that as well. There we go. Yeah, and um, before I touch on the crypto allocation, maybe I could talk a little bit about the on-one ETFs yeah. first. Yep. So um, really, when we started the business four years ago, that's basically us laying the foundation to build these all-in-one ETFs. Um, of course, it has the sort of traditional allocation to equities and fixed income. On the equity side, we're using factor ETFs, which have shown to outperform uh, broad market indices over the long term. And then on the fixed income side, you heard from Jeff Moore earlier today, we have allocation to Jeff as well as a Canadian bond allocation that can provide premium yield outcome versus, um, again, index strategies. And then just a sliver, just a sprinkle of crypto allocation through uh, Bitcoin exposure. And so this has been um, uh, quite a success for our ETF lineup, I would say. Yeah. Um, the, the four ETFs that you see in front of you accounts for 40% of our year-to-day ETF net flows. Um, and this is also a differentiating factor for Fidelity versus some of the, the bigger, more prominent, passive, balanced ETFs out there. We've got crypto allocation, um, but emphasize that again, a very small allocation um, for diversification and uh, return potential. We've got a strategic asset allocation. We don't charge an asset allocation fee on top, which is different from the, the passive uh, balance funds out there. Um, and I think what we've seen is a lot of our clients have been sort of using this playbook of using all-in-one ETFs as their core, help lower the cost of their overall book of business, and then tag on you know, uh, active mutual funds or factor ETFs to tweak the exposure. Um, so that's been sort of the, the go-to playbook for a lot of our clients. Almost like core satellite strategy. Exactly, exactly. Right, and when I'm looking at the blue part of the uh, left side of that screen where you have uh, fixed income, do I get the same exposure as I would uh, to Jeff's fixed income ETFs? Is that the same? mannerism that you use it? Right. So we're uh, built as a fund on fund. So the fixed right. income component is Jeff's FCGV, so Global Core Plus, as well as a Canadian systematic Canadian bond. So you got exposure to the global fixed income um, uh, market in addition to the equity factor and, and plus crypto allocation. Um, and something else I would add to um, the performance has been great. And I think that is, again, why we've seen such a strong net inflow. Uh, we've been able to outperform the passive players 2 to 3% over the past year, um, net of fees. So um, something I would definitely uh, highlight is fees aren't everything. Well, let's talk about that because I can see that little blue area on those um, blended funds over there goes somewhere between 1% and 3% crypto. So uh, Ritu, I guess you've got the question on how do you actually fit crypto into a portfolio? 
So that's a really good question. Um, historically, we've talked about, we'll actually just take a step back and uh, talk about both Bitcoin and Ether. Um, so historically, we've talked about Bitcoin as being uh, digital gold or an emerging store of, of value. Um, and it's effectively a, uh, a hedge against the debasement of currency. And so um, we've talked about Bitcoin over the long term being an uncorrelated asset class. Um, and so as a result, it's good for portfolio diversification. I think um, Ether actually has a role uh, in, in, that, um, in that sliver that we've talked about, the 1% to 3% sliver that we've talked about. Yep. Um, however, we need to be cognizant of the fact that, um, that Ether can complement Bitcoin nicely given their different roles within the crypto ecosystem, but um, it, is, um, it is correlated, um, it is higher beta, and it's further out on the risk spectrum. So actually, Megan's done some really good work on this where she looked at the traditional 60-40 portfolio, mm. and, um, and we looked at the risk-adjusted returns from um, the standpoint of a sharp ratio and what would happen with a 2% allocation to Bitcoin. And, um, and what we found was that um, the sharp ratio for your traditional 60-40 rebalanced quarterly um, over uh, the long term on a historical basis was roughly 0.46. Uh, and that actually, with that 2% allocation to Bitcoin, moved up to 0.67. Um, and then if you add in within that 2% allocation, um, on a market cap-weighted basis, if you added in Ether, um, that sharp ratio moved up to 0.71. So um, I think it's just, it's just a way of, of uh, looking at um, the potential for improved risk-adjusted returns on a long-term basis. Um, but I think in order to actually include it in a portfolio, I think uh, the investor needs to actually fundamental, fundamentally believe in the asset class. And given it's in its infancy, you know, like there is, there is skepticism out there, but you have to, you have to fundamentally believe in the, in the asset class. Um, in the short term, however, right now, you know, as we've talked about earlier and I touched on earlier, um, the narrative is, is very much based on what's happening in the macroeconomic backdrop. And so um, we've talked about a number of times earlier today that at some point it's going to be important to layer on risk. And so um, when it's time to do that, uh, the allocation to crypto, um, assuming a fundamental belief in the asset class, would be a good way to do that. Yeah, you're referencing the correlations that we're seeing across all the asset classes. Right, right. right exactly. And that's actually been something that has come up more recently. Like, is it truly a portfolio diversifier given, given the, the correlations that have have moved up tremendously since 2021. And I think that that's not specific to, to crypto or Bitcoin or Ether. That's across the board, across all asset classes, as we spoke about earlier today. Well, we do have a question from the audience. What are the fundamental uh, methods of evaluating investments for crypto? And how can fundamental value be established? Yeah, I think that's a tricky one because... Um, you know, with Bitcoin, we don't have we don't have cash flows, so we can't run a DCF, um, and so that's why I, the way the way I like to think about it is from a supply and demand perspective, and knowing that you know it's it's an extremely volatile asset class, it's in its infancy, but um, if I if I believe in those supply demand fundamentals, um, we should see them tighten over time and um, and it increase over time. I think it was a little bit of a surprise in the marketplace that there was such a high correlation, Megan, in the marketplace with uh, Bitcoin. But talk to me about the key uh, drivers of the, because it's been volatile, the crypto scene, if you will, and currencies this past year. What, what's been driving it all? 
Sure. So since the beginning of the year, Bitcoin and Ether are down 60% and 65% respectively. And a large part of this drawdown really happened in the second quarter. Now, one of the main drivers of this drawdown has been macroeconomic pressures on risk assets more broadly. The correlations between cryptocurrencies and risk assets, such as stocks, have picked up considerably over the past year. Now, given their historical volatility, crypto assets uh, tend to be sold off when investors look to de-risk their portfolios. And another consideration is that now that traditional yields are going up again, DeFi yields seem less attractive in comparison. So that's from a macroeconomic perspective. Now, secondly, from a more crypto-specific standpoint, there has been a series of negative developments in the crypto space, notably the collapse of the Terra blockchain in May. Now, Terra was previously one of the uh, top blockchains by market cap, so its collapse had a major negative impact on the crypto market. And then in June, uh, there were insolvency concerns around multiple crypto platforms. So to put these events into perspective, Terra collapsed because of the failure of its algorithmic stablecoin. Now, stablecoins are a type of cryptocurrency that seek to peg its value to the value of another asset, like the US dollar. Um, they are used to bridge cryptocurrencies with traditional currencies, and they're useful in DeFi protocols and for liquidity purposes and so on. Now, algorithmic stablecoins, like the one Terra had, which collapsed, um, is a type of stablecoin that's still experimental. And the idea is that there are other types of stablecoins that have proven to be historically robust that can continue to support the crypto ecosystem. Now, the insolvency of, of platforms such as Celsius, which is a cryptocurrency lending and borrowing platform that actually filed for bankruptcy in July, is due to the problematic practices employed by these platforms, uh, as well as the fact that these platforms um, have seen significantly increased withdrawals given the heightened market volatility. But the key point here is that these platforms are centralized companies. And so their insolvency does not call into question the underlying value proposition of blockchain technology or the uh, functionality of blockchain technology. And I would say that these recent events um, form part of the growing pains and the natural evolution of an asset class that's still emerging and an industry that's still forming around it. It's brought um, attention to the need for further regulation in certain areas, such as stablecoins or uh, the risk management and transparency practices of certain crypto companies. But I think this increased regulatory scrutiny is not a bad thing. It, it will probably improve the stability of major centralized uh, actors in the ecosystem that can uh, serve to increase uh, market participation and drive adoption in the long run. But I think in the short term, uh, crypto prices will likely continue to be weighed down by the macro environment. But if we look at the long run, ultimately the value of Bitcoin and Ether is going to be directly linked to its adoption, the adoption of the Bitcoin and Ethereum networks and of other blockchain networks. And so we talked about some of the elements of the value proposition of blockchain, right? Transparency, accessibility, and all that. And so ultimately, the value of Bitcoin and Ether will depend on the, how these elements of the value proposition really hold up and play out. We saw some risks that challenge some of these elements. So it will depend on how robust these elements of the value proposition turn out to be and to what extent they will actually spur the adoption of blockchain tech in the long run. 
Okay, so it sounds very much like counterparty risk is part of it, but uh, regulation and everything else. Uh, Ritu, maybe you want to address that uh, with Fidelity's capabilities in this space. Yeah, um, so I think uh, this ETF product is unique in so many different ways. I think um, first and foremost, in Canada, we can actually launch a spot ETF unlike um, other parts of the world, including the U.S., and so that's number one. Um, number two, um, we touched on this earlier, but Fidelity has been involved in the digital asset space since 2014. So it first started off uh, with the Fidelity Center of Applied Technology, where the R&D of the R&D actually really first started. Um, in 2018, Fidelity, Fidelity Digital Assets was launched, and um, that was with the view that we would have an institutional-grade platform for uh, trading and storage solutions. Um, so with this ETF specifically, of course, you know, when you think about cryptocurrency, um, the asset class itself is in its infancy, and so security is very topical. And so um, with this ETF, our primary custodian is Fidelity Clearing Canada, which is the first um, custodian in Canada that's nationally regulated for digital assets. The sub-custodian is Fidelity, Fidelity Digital Assets. And um, they have like actually a number of uh, protocols and, and security measures in place to, to ensure that security. And so um, whether it's operational, cyber, or, um, or physical. So from a physical standpoint, there are geographically dispersed bunkers across the world um, that have very rigorous entry protocols and monitoring 24-7. From a cyber perspective, we touched on wallets earlier, and, um, and there's only 2% of the liquidity that's actually in a hot wallet. Uh, the rest is in cold storage or deep cold storage. And then also from an operational standpoint, you have, uh, there's no one person internally uh, within Fidelity Digital Assets that can execute any given task. So the probability of an internal bad actor is actually quite low. Um, and lastly, it's just an easy way to get access and exposure to digital assets. Okay, so we've only got a couple of minutes left. Let's throw up that earlier chart about ETFs at Fidelity. And, and uh, Vivian, do you wanna give us kind of a final thoughts, if you will, and where are you seeing growth in this area? Um, yeah, definitely. I, I, what I would say is um, looking at what's in front of us right now, we've got a good breadth of ETF products out there. There seems to be something for um, anyone. And uh, so I would just go back to sort of um, my comment earlier about the whole ecosystem that's built around supporting the ETF business. We've got strategists um, that our subject matter expert can talk about uh, portfolio construction and allocation, digital assets. Um, we've got capital markets um, team that can help facilitate execution and trades. So I think it all goes back to you know having the support of Fidelity's um, uh, global backing and uh, echoing what Andrew mentioned earlier today. Like it's hard to define what is a normal market nowadays, and so having that support. Um, and the ecosystem around our ETF business, I think that's really been the, the differentiating factor. Wow. We're out of time. Thank you so much. Well done. Explaining a hard area. Thank you for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. 
While visiting Fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.